You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Cool. Um, thanks to you all for being here. It's, uh, it is our seventh year, and this is um, kind of cool. Um, our usual venue, which you probably both know, is we, we have two science fiction authors, and then we have a short break, and then we have a discussion about... Um, Science fiction, literature in general, science, politics, whatever. And uh, the audience takes part. So we'll put that off for later. And let me introduce our first author and begin the reading. This is a guy that doesn't need a whole lot of introduction, certainly from me. Um, Rudy Rucker is not only, um, not only sort of a cult figure in science fiction, but an international... I don't know, what can you say about Rudy? Rudy's one of the people that shaped science fiction that we see today, which is the science fiction that's not just an advertisement for the future, but a sort of a critique of the present. I don't know exactly how you would put it. Rudy actually puts the science in science fiction, but he is, in fact, a a mathematician, was at one time uh, until he got... Uh, were you fired or just dropped? He was a professor of uh, <laughs> computer science. He's written a couple of books uh, on the fourth dimension and uh, other dimensions, I think, that are less familiar. But this is, this is a uh, this is a guy that's won a number of the edgier awards in the field. His Ware Tetralogy and books like uh, Mathematicians in Love and Hylozoic are still sort of I would say pressing the end. He's one of the few writers outside of Ian Watson, I think, that actually deals with quantum physics in his work, and he deals with it um, in his own way. But I could, I could. He's also a painter. He's also a. Um, I guess that's all he is, right? Oh no, he edits. <laughs> he edits Flurb, which is uh, one of the um, more interesting uh, online magazines. I could go on and on, but people know who Rudy is, and we'll talk to Rudy uh, in the the um, the Q and A and all that kind of stuff. He's also a, a good friend and a colleague, and that's one of the privileges of being a science fiction writer is you get to hang out with actual writers, and this guy's the real deal. Uh, Rudy Rucker, anyway. Thanks, Terry. That's a, a very nice nice introduction. Uh, tonight, I'm going to read an excerpt of my memoir, which will be coming out this year. It's going to come out in a, a limited edition from PS Publications this spring, and in the fall it'll be coming out in a trade paperback from Tor Books. And the memoir, or autobiography as we used to call it, is called Nested Scrolls. And this section I'm going to read to you tonight is called The Birth of Transrealism. 
Despite my struggles, I was denied tenure at my first job as a mathematics professor at the State University College in Geneseo, New York. At age 32, I was out of work, although I did have the option of staying on for one final year as a lame duck. But then, miraculously, one of my endless job and grant applications bore fruit. My wife Sylvia found out about it one afternoon in June 1978 when she came back with the kids from the swimming pool at Letchworth Park. I was on a la ladder painting our weather-peeled white clapboards. We're selling the house, she cried. You got a new job? Yes. On the strength of my math papers about infinity, the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation of Germany had invited me for a year as a visiting scholar at the Mathematics Institute of the University of Heidelberg. Sylvia was happy about the impending change. Although cozy and rustic, Geneseo was also somewhat dull and small. The upstate New York climate was brutal. There weren't a wide range of possibilities there in terms of her finding a career. And she didn't want to see me zombie march through that, that final lame duck year at Geneseo. Instead, we'd be swanning off to Europe. Sylvia had grown up there and her parents still lived in Geneva. So fine. Our three young children weren't as enthused. At this point, all they knew of the world was Geneseo, so it was hard for them to contemplate such a great change. But they too felt some excitement and curiosity about the great adventure. Everything began happening very fast, and in the space of two months, we'd done the big move. We felt uprooted in Heidelberg in the fall of 1978, like pieces of dust in the wind. We had some trouble finding our apartment. There was a guy who was counseling arriving scholars from overseas, but my boyhood knowledge of German wasn't fully restarted yet. I only understood about half of what the advisor said, or less than that. Somehow we ended up renting the top floor of an ancient stone house on a steep slope overlooking the Neckar River near Heidelberg. The landlord and his family lived downstairs. He pretended to be nice, but he was stingy. It was tough getting him to turn our radiators on. His wife was an imposing woman with an operatic voice that always seemed ready to break into a scream of fury. I was glad I wasn't married to her. <laughs> Sometimes we'd find hedgehogs in the garden, cute little beasts who could roll themselves up into something like a spiky croquet ball. An especially difficult thing for Sylvia was that the German school days only lasted until noon. And then the three kids were home for lunch with big homework assignments that we had to help them with in the afternoons and evenings. By now I'd remembered the German I'd learned during my year in the Black Forest, but even I found the homework hard. Oh well. We were only guest workers, low-ranking immigrants, and so what if our children didn't do all their homework? Really, we didn't worry all that much about the school or even about my job. It was just a grant and there were no worries about tenure. I generally used a combination of bus and trolley to get to the Mathematics Institute. It was okay that it took me a little while. It's not like there was any big rush. I could think about infinity or science fiction on the street as well as in an office. And it was fun looking at all the Germans, most of them fit and well-dressed. I'd brought my bicycle along from America and on warm, clear days I might ride that instead of taking the bus. The head of the Mathematics Institute didn't particularly care what I did, which was great. He'd helped me line up the grant, and his group was being reimbursed, and there was nothing more to worry about. <laughs> In a way, I could do no wrong. 
He gave me a nice quiet office in the Institute's modern building with no teaching duties at all. I thought about Cantor's continuum problem for a few months, reading most of Cantor's philosophical writings in German. It made me feel like a real scholar to be studying these obscure essays, which aren't available in English. Cantor was interested in three kinds of infinity, the mathematical, the physical, and the theological. Given that mathematical set theory has developed such a precise system for talking about infinities, I'd already been thinking it would be nice if set theory had some physical applications. It very often takes decades or even centuries till a mathematical theory finds a use in physics. For instance, it was 60 years before Riemann's 1852 theory of curved space appeared in Einstein's 1916 general theory of relativity. It was intriguing that Cantor had talked about physical infinities from the very start, way back in the 1880s. I also found it interesting that Cantor didn't shy away from discussing the relationship between infinity and God. For the non-mathematician, this seems natural, but academics are, not without reason, squeamish about dragging religion into scientific discussions. Nevertheless, it's reasonable to look for connections between theology and set theory. I set up a seminar at the Mathematics Institute and gave some lectures along these lines. I was beginning to see the outlines for the popular nonfiction book about infinity, which I would ultimately write, Infinity and the Mind. As the fall of 1978 wore on, I finally came to accept that I was never going to make any big mathematical breakthrough in extending Kurt Gödel's work to solve Cantor's questions about the different levels of infinity. By the start of 1979, I decided to make better use of my time in Heidelberg and write more science fiction. <laughs> I started by writing science fiction stories, some of them inspired by paradoxical notions from the philosophy of science. I began having some luck selling my stories to SF magazines. Not all of my tales were hard SF. One was about Franz Kafka being reborn in a new body every year. I was reading Kafka's journals at the time, loving him for being such a desperately romantic fanatic. I wrote seven short stories, and then I wrote White Light, a science fiction novel about infinity. My first novel, Spacetime Donuts, written back in Geneseo, had been a fun book, but really it was a work of apprenticeship. With White Light, I got serious about being a novelist. I began writing the book in longhand one weekend in January 1979 while I was alone with the kids. Sylvia was visiting her dying grandmother in Budapest. I called my novel White Light in memory of a memorable acid trip I'd had in graduate school. And I gave it a subtitle lifted from a paper by Kurt Gödel, What is Cantor's Continuum Problem? I'd been corresponding with my college friend Greg Gibson about a new approach to writing science fiction. He'd crystallized the basic idea very clearly. I quote, the cool thing to do would be to write a science fiction novel, but write it about your actual life. Mm -hmm. The main character of White Light was a math professor closely modeled on me, and the setting was very much like Geneseo, New York. As I mentioned earlier, the practice of writing science fiction about real life is what I began calling transrealism in the early 1980s. In White Light, my life in Geneseo was the real part and the trans part was that my character in the novel leaves his body and journeys to a land where Cantor's infinities are as common as rocks and plants. White Light was also influenced by the Donald Duck and Zap comics that I loved so well. One of my chapters features Donald and his nephews, and in another chapter, objects start talking, as they sometimes do in R. Crumb comic strips. 
I also used the papers by Cantor that I had been reading, and I included the man himself as a character. Over the years, I've often worked by alternating between writing science fiction and writing popular science. So it was fitting that I began working on an early draft <coughs> of Infinity and the Mind, my nonfiction book about infinity, at the same time that I was write, writing White Light. Each endeavor was feeding the other. I got into a very pleasant and exalted mental state during this period of time. I remember having a magical dream in which I was scrambling up the ridge of a mountain. The stone underfoot was slippery pieces of shale, and among the stones, I was finding wonderful polyhedral crystals the size of chestnuts or hedgehogs. Even within the dream, I knew that these treasures represented my wonderful new ideas. I finished the manuscript for White Light in the summer of 1979 when I was 33. It would take me a few more years to finish the tome, Infinity and the Mind. I tried sending White Light to the Scott Meredith Literary Agency. They charged me a couple of hundred bucks to have someone read my manuscript. The anonymous reader disliked the book, and Scott Meredith refused to submit it to my, any publishers. So then I decided to try selling the manuscript myself. I sent it off to Ace Books, getting their address from the title page of Ian Watson's Miracle Visitors, a wonderful book written on the same wavelength as White Light. While I was waiting for my book to work its way through the Ace slush pile, I went to my first world science fiction convention in Brighton, England, August 1979, taking the train and ferry from Heidelberg. The atmosphere at mathematics conferences had always been rather frosty. There weren't enough jobs to go around, and newcomers weren't particularly welcome. But the science fiction folks were like, the more the merrier. I loved the vibe. Some well-dressed hippies from London got me high on hashish and introduced me to a hipster named Maxim Jakubowski. Maxim was editing a new line of books for the Virgin Record Company. His first book was going to be about the punk band The Sex Pistols, but he was looking for radical SF novels as well. I brought along a single Xerox of the White Light manuscript, and I handed it to Maxim on the spot. And a few weeks later, he made an offer to buy the British rights for the book. A month after that, in the fall of 1979, the editor Jim Bain at Ace made an offer for the US rights. I felt like a plant pushing out from the soil into the sun and air. <laughs> The word transreal that I came to apply to my novels was inspired by a blurb on the back of my copy of A Scanner Darkly, saying that Philip K. Dick had written a transcendental autobiography. A Scanner Darkly is a hilarious, sorrowful, transreal masterpiece. I got my copy at that SF convention in Brighton. The book was just out, and my new stoner friends there had been talking about it, complaining that it was too anti-drug. <laughs> they didn't seem to understand that the book was funny. <laughs> After that convention, waiting for a train back to London and thus back to Germany, I was reading Scanner, and I was laughing so hard that I left my suitcase on the platform, <laughs> which I suddenly realized as the train started to move. I jumped back out in the nick of time. Up until Scanner, I hadn't fully grasped how close Phil Dick's novels were to the kinds of books I wanted to write. I particularly liked the language with a flat tire way that his characters talked in Scanner, and over the years I'd, begun, I'd begin to emulate his peculiarly Californian tone. And even more, I liked the sense that Phil was writing about real people. I too felt that the characters of my novel should be based on actual people. The characters should do more than woodenly move the plot along. They should be sarcastic, miss the point, change the subject, break the set, 
and do surprising things. I find it dull when novels have characters who are supposed to be normal people. My sense has always been that there actually aren't any normal people. <laughs> Everyone I've ever met is weird at some level. It's liberating to have quirky, unpredictable characters instead of the impossibly good and bad paper dolls of mass culture. As I mentioned above while talking about white light, lifelike characters are the real part of transreal. As for the trans part, it seemed to me that I could use the special effects and power cords of SF as a way to thicken and intensify the material. The tools of science fiction can be a way, if you will, to directly manipulate the subtext. That is a way to add a more artistic shape to the suppressed fears and desires that you inevitably incorporate into your fiction. Time travel, levitation, alternate worlds, aliens, telepathy, they're all symbols of archetypal modes of experience. Time travel is memory, levitation is enlightenment, alternate worlds are travel, aliens are other people, and telepathy is the fleeting hope of finally being fully understood. I saw transrealism as a way to describe not only immediate reality, but also the higher reality in which life is embedded, and I saw transrealism as a way to smash the oppressive lie of consensus reality. In the summer of 1979, my Von Humboldt grant was about to run out. Rather than restarting the dreary charade of looking for another teaching job in the US, I managed to get the grant renewed for a second year, which would carry us into 1980. We changed departments to the so-called University Guest House. The Guest House was a lively, congenial place filled with foreign scholars and their families. We found plenty of friends for us and the kids. The only problem was the house manager with whom some of the other guests had started a feud. His name was Herr Böhm. Our daughter Georgia got caught up in a guerrilla campaign against Herr Böhm, planting insulting drawings of him around the premises <laughs> where he or his wife would find them. That Georgia. Eventually the man turned up our at our door to yell at us, but nothing more really happened. Well, there was one more thing. Herr Böhm's son had an extra car that he liked to park in my assigned slot in the basement lot. So, like any logical mathematician would do, I took my pen knife and punctured one of his tires. <laughs> I told my German-Hungarian friend Imre Molnar about my exploit. He approved. Irgendwie muss der Mensch sich die Freude nehmen, said Imre, meaning, a man's got to grab his joy somehow. <laughs> The next evening, I found that the house manager's son had punctured one of my car's tires. Without any discussion, each of us patched our tire, and after that, his car stayed out of my slot. <laughs> all in all, we liked it in the guest house. The one downside was that there was so much demand for space in this complex that our family could only get a one-bedroom apartment. None of us could sleep very soundly in such close quarters, so after a few months, we managed to get an extra room for the three kids to sleep in. It was three or four doors down. At night, I'd go in there with the kids and tell them stories or read to them before they fell asleep. For security, you'd roll down steel window covers at night, just like you'd see on shops in a big city. So after you turned out the light in the kids' room, it was really pitch dark. Once in a while, and the kids still talk about this, I'd pretend to have le left their room, but in fact shut myself inside with them. There's a slight hallway into the room that kept them from being able to see the door from their beds. And then, in the dark, moving ever so slowly and quietly, I'd creep across the floor 
and all of a sudden grab one of the children by the shoulders yelling, Kidnapper! <laughs> they'd scream like crazy. <laughs> and then they'd ask me to do it again. <laughs> or beg me not to. They could never quite decide. Probably I shouldn't have scared them that way. But it gave us something else to talk about. <laughs> My parents, Mom and Pop, had just gotten divorced. Pop and a woman friend came to visit us in Heidelberg in the fall of 1979. It was a mournful, uncomfortable encounter. Pop was a mess. He was consumed with guilt about leaving Mom, and he was drinking more heavily than ever before. His girlfriend was stiff and brittle with us. She disapproved of me, <laughs> as if I were unworthy of being Pop's son. After a few long days, I put them on a train for Paris. They are planning to stay in a good hotel and live it up. Poor Pop. He'd done his duty all his life. Now death was stalking him and he was trying to have fun. Seeing his train pull away, I stood there feeling as if my heart would break. I wanted Pop to be happy, but just now he seemed totally screwed up. And my poor mother was alone in Louisville instead of having an exciting time in Europe. Each of them was, in one way or another, difficult to live with, but how I wish they'd found a way to work things out. What to do? I started work on another science fiction novel. When faced with life's intolerable realities, I tend to transmute them into literary art. In this case, I planned to write a transreal novel as before, but without using myself as a character. I sensed that not having any specific Rudy-inspired character would give the other characters more space to develop and to open up. One character, called Cobb Anderson, would be an old man modeled on my father in his current state. To some extent, I could project myself into this character, too. For all our disagreements over the years, Pop and I never were all that different. Another factor in my writing about Pop was that I was in some sense trying to inoculate myself against ending up like him, besotted, afraid of death, and on the run from the family. The other character in my novel was a young guy called Stehi Mooney. After all these years, I wanted to finally develop a character based on my wild and wacky friend, Dennis Polk a guy who used to turn up in Geneseo to visit his big brother, Lee, who was teaching there. What I liked about Dennis was that he seemed to have no internal censor. He always said exactly what he was thinking. He was relatively uneducated, but he had a fanciful mind and a hipster, motor-mouth style of speech. In the opening scene, Cobb is sitting on a beach in Florida, drinking sherry, and he's approached by his double. At first, I thought I was writing a time travel novel, but then I hit on the notion that Cobb's double should, in fact, be a robot copy of him. To make this work, I developed the idea that it will become possible to extract a person's personality from their brain, and that it will then be possible to run the extracted human software on some fresh hardware, and why not have the hardware be a robot resembling the person's former body? Software. Back in 1979, this was a technical and little-known word. I'd picked it up from an article in the Scientific American. I decided to use it for the title of my book. I finished software near the end of our stay in Heidelberg in the summer of 1980, and I had no trouble selling it to Susan Allison, the pleasant and intelligent woman who'd taken over from Jim Bain as the science fiction editor at Ace Books. My idea of copying a person onto a robot was a fresh concept in those days, and my book gained power from the intensity of its father-son themes and from the colorful anarchism of my robot characters, whom I called boppers. Also, I had some over-the-top scenes of which I was proud. 
At one point, some sleazy biker types are, are about to cut off the top of Stay High's skull and eat his brain while he's still alive. They wanted to extract the software, you understand. I do recall that Susan Allison got me to take out a scene in which the stone Stay High takes a shit in the ocean while he's swimming. <laughs> Excise the turd, was the way she put it. <laughs> Why would I even write a scene like that? I guess I thought it was funny, and a fresh way to outrage any straight-laced readers. But there were plenty of other outrageous things in the book. Regarding the computer science theme of the book, although I knew all about the theory of computation from my studies of mathematical lo logic, I didn't know jack about real-world computers. We SF writers, very often don't know the technical details of what we're talking about. In terms of my teaching career, I could see the wave of computer science starting to build, but I didn't quite know how to get onto it. The only way to access a machine was to use a text terminal with its nasty, inscrutable protocols or to feed a deck of punched programming cards to a giant machine in the basement. An oddly anachronistic thing about software is that, in those years, I couldn't imagine there being a really small computing device with the power of a human brain. So instead of giving my Cobb emulating robot a supercomputer that could fit inside this bopper's skull, I had the Cobb robot's brain be a big supercooled clunker that follows the robot around in the back of a refrigerated van that's described as a Mr. Frosty truck. <laughs> but that's okay. It makes the book more fun. And at a deeper level, the brain in the truck is a nice concrete symbol for an organization which maintains complete control over its agents. There was no way to stretch out my grant any further than 1980. I made some attempts to find a teaching job in Germany, but that didn't work. I had to face the music and once again look for a math professor job in the US. I flew back for a series of job interviews, and in the end I received but one job offer from a place called Randolph-Macon Woman's College in Lynchburg, Virginia, known as RMWC for short. They had a three-person math department, and the town was the home of Jerry Falwell. <laughs> And so my family and I moved back to the U.S. In the summer of 1980, with a job in hand, Sylvia and I bought a car and a house in about a week. It was exhilarating to find America's bigness still in place. And ah, the supermarkets. <laughs> Outside of Winn-Dixie in Louisville, we, had a mo we too had a moment of ecstasy hearing the Beatles back in the USSR on the radio. We were glad to be back in our native culture and to know more or less what was going on and the children were gung-ho for diving back into American life. <laughs> There's a unique transreal document. <laughs> um, cool. Um, that's a lot to talk about, but we'll talk about it after, after a little while. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.